Gracious Lord, as we look into your word and we see what you have done, the mighty acts that you have achieved through your Holy Spirit, we know that it's, it's so real, well it is real, and we pray that we will just feel connected with it and know that this is what you've done then and you are still the same God today. It does the same things today. So teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And just one other little announcement on the way of announcements. During the week I managed to put a line into the, uh, the cry room. So from now on if you're a lady and you need to be in, in there at any stage, we now have done that final step of installing the PA after only how many years? It's all been in hand to this point. Right, last week. Last week in our travels through the book of Acts, we encountered a great man of God called Stephen, who became the first Christian martyr. And his brutal stoning was the event which unleashed a wave of persecution against the followers of the way, uh, which um, booted them on to the next part of their mission. And what was their mission? Their mission was to be witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And they'd got the first part. They'd been in the Jerusalem part enjoying a wonderful time. As you would, if this had just happened, you'd be just amazed. There was, there was the, the new teaching, there was a wonderful sense of community, there was praise and worship every day, they're together in, the, in Jerusalem, but it's only phase one. It's only in Jerusalem. And I'm sure you have some sense of that too. You've been someplace where you've really felt the, the Spirit of God moving and uh, friends and you've got together and then uh, comes to the end of that and you, you just don't want to go home. Now I'm sure they felt like that. But God's work was calling them. And knowing that people aren't easy to move and they don't like change, he puts in a massive change agent. Persecution, which got them more moving. And the first person after, Phil, after Stephen that we hear about is Philip. Chosen along with Stephen and six other people, a man full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit, and he's called to help with a very practical, down-to-earth, administrative job distributing food supplies fairly. And like Philip, so many others over the centuries have just started the same way. They've rolled up their sleeves, they've got involved in very practical, down-to-earth, ordinary ways in church work. And people who have become highly respected ministers later on and are the sort of people who do that. They look around and say, this needs doing, and they get in and just do it. <coughs> and come the persecution, though, and the need to get out of Dodge, we're going to see another important aspect of our man, Philip, and that is that he goes to the Samaritans. And for us, we go, goes to the Samaritans, that's just a quick gloss over, but not for the Jews that, that Philip went to Samaria. And you remember the story of the Good Samaritan? It might give you a clue about the problem with the Samaritans. Because Jesus told a story about even, how even the most unsavoury character you could think of could still be a good neighbour to you. And that unsavoury character was a Samaritan. And so, I don't know if you thought about that, but that's a story about racial prejudice. 
Well, how does that apply here? Let's think about this. The Jews, as we know, have kept very careful records of their ancestry. You know, start off with the book of Matthew, we've got and such and such begets such and such and such and such begets such and such or if you, that's in the King James Version or John was the father of Bill and Bill was the father of Harry and so on all the way through and they could trace the lineage from Jesus all the way back to Abraham. So it means that racial purity was very important to them. And the reason why the Samaritans were so odious, that means on the nose, was that their lineage had been really badly messed up by the Assyrians. Because the Samaritans had sort of evolved from the ten northern tribes of Israel. You got 200 years or so of idolatry of that northern tribes and rebellion against God, and God eventually says, that's enough. And they get conquered by Tiglath-Pileser, the Assyrian king. So this king of Assyria, what did he do? He exported large numbers of the, the northern tribe people away and he brought other people in. He replaced them with Assyrians from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath and Sevaphlaim. So you can see that if you go back to 2 Kings 17. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Zavarphaim, and settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. And nevertheless, each national group made its own gods in the several towns where they settled, and they set them up in the shrines the people of Samaria had made at the high places. They brought their own gods, put them in the existing temples. And the people from Babylon made Sukkos. Benoth, those from Kutha made Nergal, and those from Hamath made Ashima, and the Avites made Nebaz and Tartak, and the Sepharites burned their children in the fire ooh, as sacrifices to Adramalek and, and, and Amalek, the gods of Savaphaim. hope uh, there's nobody here today who knows how to really pronounce those names. And they worshipped the Lord, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from which they had been brought. And to this day they persist in their former practices. They neither worship the Lord nor adhere to the decrees and regulations, the laws and commands that the Lord gave the descendants of Jacob, whom he named Israel. And so, if you are a devout Jew watching from the next country, what are you going to think about this? What are you going to think about the Samaritans? And you'll notice there's a bit in there that said, and they worship the Lord. And because they're very superstitious, when they, they came in, they found a lot of the people were getting attacked by wild beasts, so they thought, ooh, there must be a God here. Well, we'd better get in right with him as well. And so they, they, they did. They worshiped the Lord. But how could they do that and still keep their own religion? Well, they did that because they employed a way of thinking about religion which is called syncretism, which is you just add on another religion, so therefore you've got them all covered and you're going to be safe in every sector. And then just add another reason for racial prejudice against the Samaritans. When Nebuchadnezzar defeated Judah and carried them off to Babylon for 70 years, he didn't replace the Jews in Israel with other people like he did in the northern kingdom. And so 
they came back and they still had their racial purity. The Samaritans didn't. They were the purebreds. The Samaritans were mongrels. And so when Philip goes to Samaria, he's smashing through racial prejudice because he's found in Jesus something new, that Jesus loves all people, even the Samaritans. That's what we see there. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. And now this man, who had just been doing that ordinary job of waiting on tables in Jerusalem, reveals something more about who he really is, his character and the Lord's empowering through him and he becomes known as Philip the Evangelist. It's a title which he bears still many years later when Paul and Luke go to visit him. We see that in Acts 21. Leaving the next day we reached Caesarea and we stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. Apparently you can still go there and still go to that place today. And before we look at what he did as an evangelist, take note that he got the balance between his work and his family. He got that balance right because he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And when, when you have children who follow your example in the faith, you know you've been a good example of the faith and how to live the faith. And although there are no guarantees about that, you certainly don't usually get dedicated Christian children unless they have had an example to follow. And so Philip was an evangelist through and through, and his family vouched for that by following in his footsteps. And Philip was now based in Caesarea, where no doubt he was involved with the local church. It'd be interesting to see whether he still travels to evangelise as he did at the start. But he's not just an ordinary evangelist, is he? When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs that he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralysed or lame were healed. And what was the result? Great joy. Why wouldn't there be? And so take a note to notice those things. What God did through Philip, he did the same things as he did through Jesus. He did the same things as he did through the apostles. Divine healings, deliverance from demons, powerful preaching about attention about Jesus, which got people's real attention. He is a great man of God. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised both men and women. So there was a harvest. And Philip had crossed over that racial prejudice on his own, but the apostles still had to cross over and the Jerusalem church still had to cross over. And so they sent someone up when they heard it, that Samaria had accepted of the, the word of God. They sent Peter and John to Samaria and when they arrived they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And that's the sort of 
a validation that this is really God's work when the Jerusalem people come along and lay hands on they confirm the validity of what's going on here and the fact that now the Samaritans are in and so what's that mean for us means that there is no group of people which is too smelly too obnoxious too sinful too decadent to not need the love of Jesus no person is unloved by the Saviour and if you have a people or a per people group or a person that you wouldn't ever go to then take a leaf out of Philip's book and go anyway because Philip's evangelistic heart was not concerned about whether they were nice people or or not he was con he loved he loved first he loved and he evangelized out of that love and his responsibility was to love even Samaritans now I skipped over an encounter with Simon the sorcerer in order to make a point that the gospels going on into the next phase of the program but let's go back to Simon an example of someone who is caught by what I believe is the core sin of mankind the lust for power. He had been able, through sorcery and magic, to do such wonderfully, well not wonderfully, such powerful tricks that people say, yes, this man is rightly called the great power of God. And along comes Philip, and what's he do? He outperforms anything that Simon had been able to do. And this astonishes him so much that he accepts everything Philip says to do and believes and gets baptised and follows around everywhere, astonished, just astonished. And then he sees the apostles come up from Jerusalem to see what's happening in Samaria, and he sees the Holy Spirit given at the laying on of hands. And then Simon goes, whoa, and his true character comes out. And he saw, when he saw that it was, the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Said, hey, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And so we see something we haven't seen yet in Simon. He's in this thing for the power. He's in this thing for the power of the Holy Spirit to produce signs and wonders. He's not in this thing for a relationship with Jesus. And that's a lesson for us. We're not meant to be Christians just for the signs and wonders. We're meant to be in this for the love, to return the love of Jesus. The signs and wonders are just wrappings. The present is Jesus. The signs and wonders catch our attention and they beautifully surround the present and they add value to the present and they validate the present, but they are not the present. Simon missed that. He thought that the power of God displayed through the miraculous was the present. And that was something that he could manage too. If he had the right ticket, if he had the right qualifications, he could get out there and he could be a dispenser for the Holy Spirit as well. And Peter was not very happy about that. Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. 
And this, this attitude of Simon wanting to buy power as a term. It's become a term, simony. And over the centuries when people have tried to buy positions in the church so they can have power, they've called it simony. But you see, you can't pay to have a power which is free. And we never have control over the power of God. Only God has power over the, control, over the power of God. And God rarely allows his power to flow through people who have not got their hearts sorted out first, who have not got their motives sorted out correctly. He works through those. His first concern is love, not the power. Well, having been warned, Simon lets us see a little bit more of just how much self-interest he has, how much his desire is just for his self-preservation. And he says, pray for the Lord for me so that nothing you said may happen to me. Ooh. It's really all about him, isn't it? But real love, on the other hand, puts the need of others above your own needs. Well, as we go on in the story, think about this. Here is, here is Philip. He's got a successful evangelistic campaign going. If I had anything close to that, I'd be over the moon. Nothing could be better, could it? There's lots of conversions, there's miracles, there's deliverances, and then the leaders come from Jerusalem and they bless it and say it's great. And if I was him, I'd be wanting to keep the ball rolling, put even more energy into what we're doing, enjoy the fruits of our labour. I'm going to stay put and dig into what God's going on. And then God says, go off in the desert. Well, so we've just got to be really impressed by his obedience to, to, the, to, to God. An angel said, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. He's asked to lay down a successful enterprise and go into the desert without any idea of what he's going to do when he gets there. And the, and the angel didn't give him a plan. He didn't give him a portfolio and say, oh, you'll be doing this and this and this and you'll need to take this with you. He didn't have any key performance indicators. No, all he was told was, get out of Dodge, go down the desert. And he went. He obeyed. So he started out. Run down too far? No. So he started out on his way. He met an Ethiopian eunuch. There he is. There's the blue line there. An official in charge of all the treasury of the Candace. Kandak or Candace. Anyway, it's just like a term like Pharaoh. It's the queen of the Ethiopians. And this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home he's sitting in the chariot, he's reading the book of Isaiah the prophet and the spirit tells Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. And I just think it's just a wonderful example of how the Holy Spirit guides and leads but he still gives us freedom to act. You know, sometimes we say, God, just tell me what to do, I'll do it. But I believe God so highly values freedom of choice that he doesn't give us a long list of very detailed behaviours. God doesn't micromanage us. It's more like as a coach trains his players and he expects them to make snap decisions on the fly during a game on the basis of the training they receive or like a parent gives a child a set of tasks to do, go clean your bedroom, doesn't tell him how to do it and the order he's got to do it. And so the Spirit tells Philip, go and stand near the chariot. 
with the understanding that at some point it will become obvious what the next step is. Now Philip's already broken through one racial barrier uh, by going to the Samaritans and now God wants him to break through the final barrier, you know, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And Ethiopia at that time was pretty much considered to be the ends of the earth. I mean, they didn't have planes that flew around the whole globe, did they? They just had caravans coming in with news from a long way off. So that's Ethiopia, ends of the ends of the earth and, and it's not the same exactly as we know Ethiopia now it's more like large parts of North Africa and so that was his, his command go out to the ends of the earth and God leads Philip to a very highly influential and powerful man from Ethiopia he's managing the national finances and he's got enough money to make a trip and it'll be an expensive trip to Jerusalem got enough money to purchase a scroll and they're, they're big big things wound up he's got enough education to be able to read the scroll and so this is an important guy historically he's considered to be the one who started off the church in Ethiopia and as you think about what Philip the evangelist did in this time what did he do first he followed the leadings of the Lord which was actually only one more step to what he had to do. He just knew enough to know, oh, I need to do this next step. And then, so he goes, and then he joins in to the action. He got alongside the chariot, and he observes for a while to becomes clear what he has to do. And third, he asks an inquiring question, sort of flows out of the situation, because he's read the situation. It's a natural thing. It's not forced, he doesn't... Say, so, oh, I'm going to evangelise. I have to remember point one, two, three. No, he just goes with the flow and asks a leading question. He ran up to the chariot, heard the man reading, said, do you understand what you're reading? Do you understand what's happening to you? Do you understand why the world is the way it is? Do you understand what really gives peace in life? Do you understand where that thing you've just said comes from? I guess that do you understand, you could start meaningful questions, conversations with people. Just think about it. It's a great way of saying, do you understand? It's a good way of getting a gospel conversation going. And when you do, now and then you run into someone like this Ethiopian who is willing to consider your explanation. Well, he says, how can I? unless someone explains it to me. And so he invites Philip, come up and sit with me. Why was he reading Isaiah? Interesting thing I discovered was that Isaiah was actually the most popular scroll of the time. And there are you know, people who research and find fragments of ancient scrolls. Isaiah is the one they find more of than anything else. But you know, it's obviously the timing of the Holy Spirit's in here. Uh, because the Ethiopian is reading aloud, which is more the case in those days uh, than nowadays. He's reading aloud so Philip could know what he was up to. And he was reading from, by the providence of God, the clearest 
Old Testament prophecy about Jesus. And so here he is. He's a prepared heart by the Holy Spirit. He's ready. He's waiting to hear an answer. All he needs is someone to tell him. And uh, this is the uh, passage of Scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? About himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Think about this guy. He's a man of action, isn't he? He's incisive, he's decisive, he's exercisive, he's a man of action. And as they travel along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, there's water. What can stand in the way of me being baptised? And some of the manuscripts that have come down to us over the years have the next, this next verse in it. And Philip said, well, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And the eunuch answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he gave orders to stop the chariot and then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptised him. And now the Ethiopian has got the last piece of the jigsaw puzzle. He's obviously already a very devout person. He's, above, he's made a faith journey to Jerusalem. He's purchased Jewish scriptures and he's been actively studying them, poring over them in order to understand him. And Philip comes in, completes the picture, baptises him on the basis of his faith and the man is full of joy. He has all he needs now for a successful Christian life and God knows this. And so what does he do? And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch didn't see him again. But he went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus. And he travelled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. And here is a rare occasion when God transcends the normal and, and Philip is miraculously tra transported to Azotus. As you can see, if you go up the coast a bit, he goes up there. And it's a little reminder that the concrete world in which we live and move and being, have our being, is not all there is. There are other realities which enable miraculous travel. Think about this. Jesus walked on the water. He appeared out of thin air in a room with his disciples. Travelled up to heaven until he became hidden by clouds. Elijah was taken up in a fiery chariot. Enoch walked with God and then was no more. And Philip here is miraculously transported to Azotus and he just gets right back into doing what he is. He's an evangelist and he preaches the gospel in every town until he eventually settles in Caesarea where we find him in Acts 21 up at the top there, makes his way all the way up to settle in Caesarea. So, that's Philip, a mighty man of God. Philip, the evangelist, is the only one in the Bible who's called the evangelist. 
As we look here, I wonder if the Holy Spirit has been stirring the evangelistic gift in someone this morning. Whispered into their heart, this is your gift. Now we're all commanded to evangelise, but some of us have a special gifting in this department. And I wonder if he's speaking to someone this morning. How are you going to know if you have it? Well, don't judge it by whether or not you're good at it. Don't assess your gifting by whether or not you've led lots of people to the Lord. Rather, gauge it by the love you have for those who don't yet know Jesus, who are stumbling around in darkness. Gauge it by the desire you have that people find what you've found, that the deepest yearnings of our heart and soul are only met in Jesus. There is a general sense in which it's relevant whether you have the gift or not because all of us are meant to love our neighbour as ourselves after loving the Lord our God with all our heart and mind and strength and soul and all of us are called to evangelise and all of us are meant to ask God to lead us and guide us and empower us and then look around for opportunities and then just do what some of the translations said. Philip opened his mouth. All of us are meant to take the opportunities that come up but trust that we and the Holy Spirit are in a partnership with this. And we're all given people that the Lord wants us to find, set aside for us to find before the foundation of the world. And we're all encouraged to, join, to enjoy that. You never really know where the Holy Spirit will take you if you're willing to just do what Philip said, leave something which is going really well, Go off down to the desert. If you're sensing within yourself this morning something more than just that general call to evangelise, I'd like to pray with you right now. So let's all join in prayer. Gracious Lord, we know how important it is for the spread of your word, for the evangelistic spirit to be stirred up within each of us. My prayer is that in this moment, if... Uh, you're stirring someone's soul that uh, this will be a wonderful, wonderful confirmation that God has called them to be an evangelist. We know as soon as you say yes, as soon as you say yes, I will evangelise that the devil will start to stir up all manner of anxious, negative thoughts. And may that encourage us to know that that will only happen because Jesus is real. And there is an enemy. And may we not be threatened by that. May we know that we can take every negative thought captive. We do it by trusting in the calling of the Lord, trusting in the truth we have in the word of God. We have everything we need. Trusting in the, the body of people around about us who love the Lord, who will strengthen us. Trusting in your Holy Spirit living within us. Lord, may you fill the heart of the evangelists amongst us this morning with the overflowing love you have for lost people. Give them, just open their eyes for a moment to, to, to see into the boundless love you have for people who don't know you and just drink deeply from it. And I pray that those you feel the stirring will tell 
Well, tell a friend, tell a neighbor. Maybe you should spend some time in prayer this morning. Oh, most amazing and wonderful Lord, unleash the evangelists, I pray in Jesus' name.